Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Weird House Cinema. This is Rob Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we're going to answer the question, what do you get when you throw Mad Max, Star Wars, and 3D in a blender with copious dirt road driving sequences? The answer is Metal Storm, the destruction of Jared Sin. Uh, I, uh, so I'm very excited to talk about this movie today because it's not only, uh, one of those great blender movies, you know, where you're just kind of chucking in elements from everything and you mix them all up into a cinema smoothie, but it's also a great example of something that I think a lot of listeners will, will have experience with from their day-to-day jobs. This movie is a great example of, uh, the boss had an idea and now it's our job to make it work. (laughs) Yes, to, to bring it to life. Uh, the, the boss, in, in this case, for the most part, is Charles Band. So, yes, we are returning to Band Camp. I don't think we, we necessarily intended to return to, to the cinematic world of Charles Band so soon after Trancers 2. But then you ended up, I, I mentioned it mm-hmm. uh, in the Trancers episode, and then you ended up watching it. And here we are. Right. Last weekend, I was visiting with an old friend of mine who I hadn't seen in a long time, and we ended up going out to rent some discs, and and one of the discs that was just glowing on the video store shelf was Metal Storm, The Destruction of Jared Sin. It was fresh in my mind from your uh, mention on the Trancers 2 episode, so I was like, well, we got to pick it up, and we had a blast watching this thing. Though I I will say for for a, a really pretty dumb movie a really enjoyable but dumb movie this one definitely took me two go-arounds to understand the plot (laughs) well i I look i look forward to that i i I have seen it twice as well but those viewings are separated by by many years uh uh now speaking of the disc i will just go ahead and mention right now that this is the uh, we both watched the shout factory blu-ray edition that i think came out in 2016 Mm -hmm. pretty awesome has some neat extras and it's two discs One disc is your typical Blu-ray 2D format, and then the other one is in 3D for those of you who have the equipment to make three-dimensional cinematic viewing possible. Yeah, well, what what would it require? Would it be red-blue glasses, even at home? I'm not sure. I'm not up Mm -hmm. enough on this technology. Um, So I was afraid to even put it into my Xbox. I was like, I don't know what will happen could be dis- devastating but th- what like other 3d movies this movie has a lot of shots that don't make sense at all when you're watching it in 2d so characters just shoving things toward the camera here you know like here's a squirt of goop into the camera lens here's a yeah. uh here's a thing flying at you it's very much like uh you know uh, uh friday the 13th part three in 3d where there'll just be characters like holding out a mug towards the screen why <laughs> yeah i mean most of these moments you probably would i mean i don't know it depends i guess i went into it to the second viewing knowing it was filmed in 3d so the sequences where people are reaching at the screen like they really stand out uh to stand out to me i don't know if, if they would seem out of context to other viewers but there is one terrific sequence in which a truck drives off into the distance and then we pan over to a bush uh, that has like or like a you know this you know stick tree, and we we kind of zoom in on a branch that's pointing at the camera, and we just linger yeah. there for for several seconds. And of course, the whole reason is like, all right, we're shooting in three D. We got to get something in there, get something pointing at the camera, something jutting at the audience, so they can marvel at it and reach out and try to touch it. 
But this is actually 3D theology within the world of the movie because that tree has religious significance in the world of the, the wasteland of Jared Sin, right? Remember, because he has oh, yeah. the vision with the tree in it. It's a tree that looks like that one. Yeah, yeah. We have we have some some there 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 are a lot of ideas in this film. Yes. Many of them kind of you know, not completely formed and kind of ethereal, but there's definitely some Old Testament mysticism, uh-huh. uh, you know, floating around somewhere in this picture. Yeah, it's the Old Testament if it involved cyborgs and a crystal mask. Yes. Uh, like a lot of the, you know, sci-fi mashup movies of the 1980s, this one, I think, is some of its strongest elements are sort of the meta of the movie rather than the movie itself. Like, this movie has a killer poster. It has mm-hmm. a killer trailer we'll let you hear a little bit of. And uh, it also just, I mean, y- you can't deny that name. Metal Storm, the destruction of Jared Sin, which is yeah. funny on, on many levels. I mean, number one, I, I love the combination of, like, the tech Viking vocabulary, Metal Storm, but then with the name Jared, this utterly mundane name. So I was trying to think variations on it. Like, did they also try out Bone Crag, the Eschaton of Cyber Jimmy, or <laughs> Blood Blizzard, the Annihilation of Cody Tron? I don't know. I don't know. Jared sounds a little more regal than some names. I don't know. Maybe okay. it, it makes me think of Jareth, the, the Goblin King or something. I don't know. It has, uh, I don't know. There's a, there's a certain bit of... Um, of of mystery to the name Jared, and then you combine it with Sin S Y N, uh, you know, and then it takes on otherworldly qualities. Uh, okay, maybe we have different associations. I mean, when I think Jared, I think kids I knew in Tennessee in the nineties. Oh well, I mean, yeah, I mean, I can also think of of people I've known with the name Jared, uh, uh-huh. and they they're just regular people. Uh, they don't seem like space goblin kings or anything. But uh, I don't know. Yeah, I can't explain it. But maybe it's because ultimately the Jareds and the Jareths that I know best are the cinematic ones. I was trying to think of a real good 90s Tennessee name, and I was coming up short. Uh, I don't know. It would be like, like like Braden Tron or something. <laughs> do you know yeah. any Bradens? I do. Something, no. something with Jim Bob in it, maybe? Jim Bob is a, a solid 90s Tennessee name. Oh, I, I think you're thinking a little more Bayou than than I am. I don't know. I don't know. Um, this, these were these were Tennessee names, Jim Bob. Okay, no, no, no. The, the other thing, the other half of what's really amazing about the name, though. So you got the tech Viking vocabulary, the name Jared, but also this is a movie that promises the destruction of Jared Sin and does not come close to delivering on that promise. Jared Sin escapes this movie completely intact. Yes. Uh, yeah, this is this is hilarious because it's not just us, the viewers making this comment. Like, apparently this was a concern of the screenwriter at the time uh, okay. talking to uh, the producer and Charles Band's father, Albert Band, and saying, uh-huh. hey, this this title makes no sense. Can we call it The Escape of uh, Jared Sin? Because that's what happens at the end. He's not destroyed. And Albert Band's like, no, that's 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 not a good title. The Destruction of uh, of Jared Sin. I think they were trying to set up a like Jared Sin in Beverly Hills sequel. Yeah, Jared Sin trilogy. I don't know if I if I'm being generous, I might say, well, maybe the idea is it's the destruction wrought by uh, Jared Sin, kind of like the desolation of Smog in the Hobbit trilogy. Oh, okay, yeah. But I don't think anyone actually interpreted it that way. Um, and as we'll get to the ending, obviously, towards the end of this episode. But I, the thing is, there are plenty of other films that manage to give their hero an actual victory over a villain while preserving said villain for a possible sequel. Mm-hmm. You know, I think of there's so many examples, you know, where at the end the, the villain rises up. Oh, they're not dead after all. A hand comes reaching out of the lava or whatnot. Right. Um, so I don't know. It seems weird that he just completely escapes. Yeah. He just zooms off into a world of triangles. 
Yeah. Kind of great. He, he, oh, well, actually, no, we were saying that, uh, so maybe the sequel they were setting up is he comes to Earth and he, uh, you know, goes around Beverly Hills or something. But the other mm-hmm. option is Jared Sin goes to Flatland and it's an Edwin Abbott kind of thing. And you have to figure yeah. out, like, how Jared Sin would fit in in this world of 2D shapes. Hmm. Or maybe it's like he just transcends. He, he becomes part of another dimension and he just and he gets away. I don't know. Our heroes th- seem to think they can catch him in a sequel, uh, but that sequel never came to be. Okay, elevator pitch on this movie. Jared Sin, the tyrant of the wasteland, wants to become even more tyrannical with the help of a large magic crystal, and it's up to Mad Max, Han Solo, and <laughs> Kelly Preston to stop him. Ah, oh, this is an absolutely wonderful trailer. This is this is just an, an amazing trailer. You should you make sure you check this out. I'll in, I'll include the trailer at the um, the the, uh, the blog post for this at samutamusic.com. Uh, but this is the voice of God Himself in this. This is Don LaFontaine, uh, who narrated so many wonderful movie trailers back in the day. In a future that grows ever closer, the fate of our Earth will lie in the hands of one man. A solitary warrior of great courage. His name is Dogen, and he is called the Finder. His enemies will emerge from the underworld to test his strength. Yurok, the Cyclopean warlord of the One-Eyes. The Assassin Baal. Half man, half machine. And Jared Sin, leader and mastermind of the Sinister Renegades. Metal Storm, the destruction of Jared Sin in 3D. I would also say this movie is very well suited for a clip show style trailer because it has a lot of great elements in it that are only in the loosest possible way strung together by plot logic. It's mostly just how can we fit together these set piece ideas that, that the boss had. Yeah, and the trailer, tra- you know, like a lot of trailers, it shows you all the cool stuff in the film. Yeah. Uh, but it does a great job of, of selling it. And ultimately, the story of Metal Storm is a story of successfully selling an idea, even if the idea hasn't completely been developed yet. Okay, well, let's explore that story of Metal Storm by getting into the cast of characters. All right. Um, well, the, we've already mentioned the director. The director is Charles Band, born 1951. We've discussed his bio on two previous episodes because he, <laughs> he directed Transfers 2 and he was the producer uh, on um, Robot Jocks. Robot so, Jocks, yeah. Yeah, so go back and listen to those if you, if you want to hear more about uh, the, the Band family. Uh, but it, just in brief, he's the man behind first Empire International Pictures and then Full Moon Features. And Full Moon Features is still going strong today. So this movie came out in, what year was it, 1983? That seems about right. That's right, 83. A a big year for 3D films, as we'll discuss here shortly. Now, um... The uh, again that Blu-ray edition of Metal Storm from Shout Factory, or maybe it, is it Scream Factory on this one? Sometimes it's Scream Factory, sometimes it's Shout Factory. At any rate, one or the other, same company. It, it's really good. It has some wonderful behind-the-scenes stuff, and they get into a little bit into how this film came to be. And basically, Band had this basic idea for the film that was uh, brought to him by screenwriter Alan J. Adler. Um, and then Band had some effective posters and one sheets put together, you know, hired an artist and so forth. And then he started pitching the movie. Um, 
to a certain extent, like they were, it was already in production, you know, like, Mm -hmm. like Metal Storm is happening. Do you want in on Metal Storm? Okay. This reminds me very much of the Canon films approach, or at least what would happen with a lot Mm -hmm. of the Canon films of this era, which is a a very poster first production process. Yeah. You know, you're kind of leaning into the marketing before the creative product is really even finished or sometimes before it's even begun. Right. Yeah. So, and you know, I think that that was also like part of, uh, bands, um, Strength is that you know he was really good at, at selling this kind of stuff. So um, you know, in in some areas, I think this this totally shows with the with the finished picture. You know that a lot of it ended up coming together in real time or at the last minute on an extremely tight budget and schedule. Um, maybe not tight schedule by like modern standards, but at the time, this was a tight schedule considering all the practical stuff they were having to do. Uh, in other cases, watching this, I don't know. It, it I, I was really impressed with what they were able to achieve. You know, it make, makes the, the results all the more impressive. But uh, at one point, Ban paused production so that he could take he could go to Cannes Film Festival and basically pitch the film so they could get enough money to finish filming it. And so just about <laughs> everyone involved, especially in the effects and the music department, they seem to have stories about like how little sleep they got, uh, how down to the wire everything was and, uh-huh. and having to sort of roll with like sort of last minute changes and requests. Uh, this is hilarious, like that he's getting investors at con where the people are there to watch the, you know, the big like art films of the year. Yeah, well, I don't know. I mean, this in, in a sense, this is uh, maybe it played well at, at, uh, at the festival. I don't know. Um, so, again, this was uh, one of the big reasons that this film like, made it uh, out. Not only, you know, was completely finished, but also uh, ended up on a number of screens uh, across the country, was that it was a 3D film. Uh, and this is obvious if you watch the trailer. Even the trailer was released in 3D mm-hmm. in in, uh, in theaters. I believe it was shown at the front of Jaws 3. Uh, so Band was an early adopter to um, the early 80s 3D boom. Um, he actually used it in his first film, 1982's Parasite, which stars Demi Moore, um, and the fact that he he went with 3D on this picture is, again, one of the major reasons that it was picked up and widely released. So, of course, this was not the first big 3D movie boom. At least one other wave of 3D movies had come before, maybe multiple waves, but this was a revival of the, the technology. Yeah. yeah, I mean, basically 3D films have been around for a while. I think the first 3D film was actually 1922's The Man from Mars, uh, M-A-R-S. I'm not sure what that stands for, but uh, <laughs> a silent film that used a 3D process called Teleview. So there are technological changes over the years, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, there's, there seems to be this ebb and flow of the three. Like 3D goes away and then uh, filmmakers return to it as a way to try and attract audiences into, into the theater. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a novelty. Yeah. So if it's always there, people maybe get tired of it. They decide they don't want to wear grubby glasses and, and get a migraine while they watch a blockbuster, <laughs> or at least that's, that's my approach to it. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, we still see this today. You know, 3D will come back. 3D, you know, IMAX 3D or whatever it happens to be. Uh, what year was it? Wasn't it like Avatar was around the time there was another big 3D fad and then that yeah. went away again? And it'll yeah. be back another 15 years after that. It seems like 15, 20 year cycles maybe. Yeah, and I'll and I'll fall for it and go and watch something and I'll get a headache. You know, end yeah. up watching half the film in uh, you know, brain twisting three D and then watch the the last of it with the glasses um just folded up beside me and just watching like the weird way that the, the screen looks if you're not wearing the glasses. Yeah. Uh but anyway, this was again, we're talking about the the early eighties and eighty two and eighty three were pretty big 
for 3D. And part of the this whole thing was that you had at least three different film franchises that were about to hit their part three in their, their series. And so, I mean, that's perfect. You know, Friday the 13th, part three, 3D. Amityville, 3D. Jaws, 3D. So those, those were 82 and, and 83 films. Often the, the nadir of a series that in many cases wasn't good anyway, like there. There are no Friday the 13th films that are like good movies, but some of their <laughs> some of them are enjoyable trash. Part 3 is just is just the bottom of the barrel, like you cannot get worse. <laughs> but there are a lot of stabs at the camera, I'm assuming, Yes. Right? Yeah, a lot of not just stabs though. That's what you'd expect, you know, the knife going toward the camera, but a lot of it is also just like people adjusting a clothesline and the pole at the end of the clothesline is poking into the camera. Things at that level of mundanity. Uh, now, there were other pictures that came out in 3D, and we're not, certainly not going to list them all. But one was, uh, the, the, uh, was the 1983 film Space Hunter Adventures in the Forbidden Zone, which I'd love to come <laughs> back to on the show at some point because it's kind of Metal Storm with a much bigger budget. Oh, I don't think my heart could contain it. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> like what if, what, if, uh, what if Metal Storm had both uh, Ernie Hudson and Michael Ironside in it? So just, just prepare yourself for such a possibility. I love those actors. All right, let's move on to the the writing on this film. Uh, again, we mentioned their name, Alan J. Uh, Adler, born 1948. He was one of the writers on, uh, on Band's uh, 1982 film, Parasite. He also wrote his 1983 film, The Alchemist. And he went on to write uh, an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation and uh, the Filmation Ghostbusters cartoon. So not the one, not the real Ghostbusters with the characters from the film, but that other Ghostbusters show that had like a cartoon gorilla in it. What? I don't even remember this. Yeah, it, it exists. Uh, <laughs> okay. I always forget that it exists, but it does. Is it a ghost gorilla? I don't know. I've never watched it because I always just, inst- I looked at it and I would instinctively know these are not the Ghostbusters, mm-hmm. though I think they actually predate what we think of as the Ghostbusters, like it was an earlier property. Anyway, Adler was also a toy consultant on the 1992 Robin Williams film Toys. <laughs> Oh, wow. Which is um, a, a, what, a, a much beloved film? I don't know. Is I, it? Never, <laughs> I don't it is. It's an extremely weird and alienating movie about the military industrial complex through the yeah. guise of a children's movie about toys. I think the premise is that Robin Williams plays somebody who like is the, the heir to a toy factory fortune. Uh, but then like his stepbrother or something comes in and he's like this gruff military guy and he wants to use the toys to train children to be soldiers. Yeah. And there's also like a sea monster in it. Yeah. It had a good cast, as I recall. And Tori Amos did a, a song for it. So it has that going for it. That's interesting. Well, shall we move on to the cast? Oh, yeah. We got some Jeffries in this movie. Right. Uh, so starring Jeffrey Byron as, is it Dogen or Doggin? I can't remember. It's Dogen, though Dogen. we were calling him. So because the main character of this film, Dogen, is dressed exactly like Mad Max, it's not like a little bit of a, he's like, they were just like, dress him like Mad Max. And I guess the costume department said, okay. And uh, so he's Mad Max. So we were calling him Mod Mox or sometimes Dogecoin uh, because we <laughs> couldn't we couldn't hear exactly what his name was, but we knew it started with Doge. Yeah. Yeah, he is. He is basically Mad Max in this, very Mad Max-esque, in the same way that this whole movie is Road Warrior-esque. Um, but I think we would we should state that I think his, the leather outfit he's wearing is tighter than Mad Max's outfit. Yes. And so we ultimately have a sexier Mad Max. 
I, I think so. And it is Road Warrior-esque, but I would say nerfed a little bit. So whereas The Road Warrior is a hard R action movie, this is like The Road Warrior, but PG with a bunch of Star Wars thrown in with it. Yeah. And also, the uh, the, the I did really notice this uh, when I was watching it. I, I enjoyed all the cars driving around and chasing each other. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, uh, but when I was watching the behind-the-scenes stuff, they were talking to... Um, uh, they were talking to Richard Band, who did the music, mm-hmm. and uh, I believe it was it was he was the one who pointed out, yeah, the the, the car chases are really slow in this. Yeah, um, like I think they meant to speed them up, uh, speed the film up, but then they realized oh. that the movie wasn't quite long enough. Uh, to do that, that if they did that, it would be too short. Um, but I didn't have any problem. I enjoyed all that, the car chases. I've that, seen oh, enough uh-huh. uh, like Road Warrior esque car chases that I I can take like any quality level there. That though, that's a terrible instinct. I mean, if you're thinking like, oh, people won't think that this trashy movie is long enough, we've got to pad <laughs> it out. That that is the sign of that you're you are thinking about making a B movie in the wrong way. Mm-hmm. Embrace the spirit of Attack of the Crab Monsters, a movie that is sub seventy minutes, and it's still and it's great trash. <laughs> I agree. I like I like a, a good short film. Uh, yeah, that can that can get everything done and get me in bed. You know, in a an hour and some change. Uh-huh. Uh but so Jeffrey Byron as Dojin, he's our he's our scruffy, sweaty, hunky Mad Max wannabe. They he he is sort of a wanderer of the wasteland, much like Mad Max in The Road Warrior, but he's also uh he's he's got like a job, right? Yeah, like we're told he's a hunter and he's hunting Jared Sin. So uh, we we not really I don't think we get much in the way of information on who's employing him if he's mm-hmm. is he salary is he hourly is he freelance <laughs> I don't know yeah. but but unlike Mad Max he seems to be there on official business and not just wandering the wilds now if I remember correctly I think Mad Max does have a job in the first movie he's some kind of cop or but uh, in the, by the second movie yeah he's not employed he's just trying to survive and get the guzzling. Uh, but, but he, Dojin has a job. He's called a ranger finder class. Hmm. Okay. That's uh, like a, like a, a, a subspecialty. Or uh, it's an upgrade from ranger loser class. <laughs> All right. Well, Jeffrey Byron, who plays his character born 1955. He was also in 1984's the dungeon master, which is another band picture, uh, mm-hmm. which he wrote a segment for. I believe that one's an anthology. Mm-hmm. Uh, he did a lot of TV work. He did some, he certainly spent his time at band camp. He started out as a child actor, so he actually appears in the 1963 John Ford film, Donovan's Reef, as well as an episode of the original Twilight Zone. Huh. And he's, he's done a lot of bit parts here and there. He played, interestingly enough, he played a, this character, if you can call it a character, test administrator in the 2009 <laughs> Star Trek movie. Oh, for the Kobayashi Maru test? Yeah. That's what I'd guess, yeah. In, in this movie, he is always shiny. Did you notice that? Yes. It's like he's never he's never dry, uh, so he's always, I guess, been recently sweating and the sun is glinting off of his face. Well, another – I didn't think about this. Uh, I just don't know much about – 3D and what it takes to, to film in 3D. But in the, the featurette, they were pointed out that, first of all, you have to light everything a lot more intensely mm-hmm. uh, to film in 3D, or certainly they did at the time back in um, the early 80s. And uh-huh. they also had to uh, use or- like orange makeup on everybody's face. Mm. Uh, so that could be part of the the look that we see with our main character here is like that, that perhaps he's a lot oranger in, uh, you know, in real life uh, on the actual set. And, um, and maybe that ends up making his face look sweatier than it is. I don't know. 
Hmm. Well, he's very shiny in the movie, but not all the actors are shiny. Like uh, the the actor playing Jared Sin is very matte. He's he's a very mm-hmm. matte guy. Yeah. All right. Well, let's move on to the next. Uh, I guess it's kind of a subhero uh, of the film. Uh, this is the Han Solo character Rhodes, mm-hmm. played by Tim Thomerson. Uh, that's Jack Death himself, born 1946. Timmy Tees. I mean. One of the things that's absolutely astonishing about this movie is the, the age question that we're going to get mm-hmm. into about like about Tim Thomerson here. But yes, he's he's sort of playing Jack Death as as this character Rhodes, but he's also definitely Han Solo, like you say. Yeah. The, the idea was like, what if Mad Max and Han Solo were buddies and they went on an adventure together? Yeah, but in a weird way, it is like it's like the old version of Han Solo, the Han Solo from the Star Wars sequels. And and yet the, yeah, the, the yeah. age question that comes up, this is this thing. It's like unless I'm just drastically wrong on the math, Tim Thomerson was 37 uh, during this film, uh, during the filming of this this movie. Like, I just I don't know. I just <laughs> I just I look at I look at him in this and he's just a lot more weathered looking. Yeah. Um, and I, I just would not guess that he was 37 years old. It seems like he's always been at least 42. We had the same comment about Trancers, too, in that he seemed much older than he actually was. And the same is true here. He, I, I can't believe that. I mean, yeah, he seems at the absolute youngest mid-40s. Yeah. So, I don't know. I mean, people age differently. And, yeah. uh, I mean, maybe that's ultimately – and also, you know, makeup and, and hair uh, are yeah. part of it. Uh, and maybe it, this ultimately, like, this this leaned into his um, – his, vi- his vitality on the screen, you know, is that like he's a he's much younger than he appears. So he's able to bring energy to these kind of rugged roles. I don't know. At any rate, he's he's always a pleasure. He's great in this. Uh, yeah. He has great comedic timing and so forth. Yeah, he's a he's a whiskey drinking, cynical, you know, ah, I don't I didn't get myself into this. Uh, he's also the source of comedy in, in the same way that Han Solo is sometimes the cynical source of comedy. The person who has a pessimistic outlook on the adventure. Yeah. All right, let's move on to the next actor. We have the character Diana. Uh, it's spelled D-H-Y-A-N-A uh, in the credits. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, this character is played by Kelly Preston, who lived uh. 1962 through 2020. Oh, she passed away last year? Yeah, yeah, sad, sadly uh. did. She uh, she started off on various early 80s TV shows, uh, but this, this was her first uh, feature film, followed the same year by John Carpenter's Christine, the adaptation of the Stephen King novel about the haunted car. Mm-hmm. Now, she eventually met John Travolta on the set of The uh, the Experts in 1987, and the two married. Uh, she acted in a number of notable films um, over the years, but genre films of note, uh, of interest to us, she was in Space Camp. She had a brief part, I think, in From Dusk Till Dawn, and she was also in her husband's sci-fi passion project, Battlefield Earth, in 2000. I did not remember this at all, though I have seen Battlefield Earth, and I was just laughing this morning remembering that the aliens in it are called the Cyclos. Yep. It was, it's just the word Psychos with an L in it. Yep, yep, the Cyclos. And she plays a Cyclo. She's a sexy Cyclo named Chirk. She has a big, long tongue. Well, not in my brain at all. Completely forgot that. I should uh, also mention she's also in Jerry Maguire uh, from 1996, which isn't a genre film, but that means her performance will one day become a part of the, the brilliant pyramid that rises out of the American desert. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Acting-wise... Um, She's present in this film. She's not really given much to do. And again, she was like, you know, she was, she was very young at the time. So, uh, you know, not a knock on her uh, her acting ability, but there's just not, this is not much of a role. 
There is a great scene where she gets teleported, and before she gets teleported, she turns into a big red laser blob. Yes. <laughs> All right. And you know who who did that, whose magic that was. That was the oh, magic yeah. of Jared Sin. So let's get to the, the actor who plays Jared Sin, the actor Michael Preston. Uh, no relation to Kelly Preston, by the way. Um, uh, born in 1938. Uh, this is our, our central villain. You know, I he, he's... Somehow at the same time, wonderful and very underwhelming as a villain. Like he, he is a very ineffective and underwhelming villain in many ways. But at the same time, I enjoyed his presence because of his bizarre armor that he wears the whole movie. It's a, it looks like, uh, I don't know, like sparring pads in a weird way. It's like it looks very mm-hmm. puffy and foamy and has these odd bubble shapes where in some places where his muscles would be. It has this giant caldera of a collar um, yep. and his hair is just out of this world. It's this matte, flat, comb down in the front kind of 90s alt rock haircut. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's he has weird hair and a very weird outfit that yeah, it's like a kind of a muscle suit, kind of like power armor. It's it's black and crimson. And it's the sort of outfit that if it were just a few degrees to the left, if it were just a little cheaper, it would look just absolutely awful. It would just look like something out of Power Rangers. Uh-huh. But uh, you know, part of it maybe is the cinematography, maybe. Uh, but but I think a large part of it is is the costuming. Like the costuming in this film is is generally just is is really effective. Um, and credit where credits due, this is the work of Kathy Clark, who also gave us those wonderful jumpsuits and robot jocks. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, I think the the Jared Sin character, like ultimately, it's. A large percent of it is the weird hair and the strange costume and the light, especially in the shadow realm sequences. It's mm-hmm. really well lit and looks really cool. And the actor tends to have a certain intensity about him. I found that he never looked completely silly, which is a huge accomplishment considering yes. some of the elements that were in play. He has notes of Mick Jagger as what's his name in uh, Free Jack. Yeah, that no, notes name? of v- that. Vicindic or whatever it was. Yeah, I think that was right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so occasionally I really thought Jared Sin was going to say, get the mate. Uh, but he never did. In fact, a lot of times he doesn't talk. He just stares into the camera, you know, smoldering with the eyes, with the awesome, you know, flat front haircut. Yeah. Yeah. Ultimately, unlike Mick Jagger in, in Free Jack, when, when Michael Preston opens his mouth and, and actually uses dialogue, there's some level of consistency. And it doesn't just completely destroy the illusion of coolness. So, uh-huh. uh, but anyway, uh, Michael Preston was was like a, a big get for the filmmakers here because they were making a Road Warrior esque film, and Preston was actually in the Road Warrior playing this character Papagallo, who I think was the leader of the good guys. Oh yeah, I think he was sort of the 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 leader of the yeah the compound that was being assaulted by the uh, the gang of Lord Humongous. Yeah. So this guy was London-born. He was a boxer turned singer turned actor. I think he ended up spending most of his time in Australia, if I'm I'm not mistaken there. He started acting in the early 70s, wound down in the late 90s. But don't worry, he got an episode of Highlander, the TV series, in there before he retired. (gasps) Did he play an immortal? I assume so. Um, I mean, if, if you're a... If you're a guest player on Highlander, the TV series, mm-hmm. and you're you know at all notable for any villain roles, you, you're, you're losing your head. That's all there is to it. I, I haven't seen Highlander, the TV series, but a while back you shared with me a really great uh, compilation video that was something like the 17 <laughs> best quickenings of the Highlander, the TV series. 
Oh, but did you see the 17 or however many worst? Uh, oh, I, actually, I think maybe that okay. was it. Yeah. Because there are some bad ones. Because you had them, to have a quickening every episode, and they all had to be like somewhat different. Some of them involved incredibly tasteless visions. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, he got in there on that. He also did a fair amount of TV work, and uh, I think he was in a couple of different Australian cop shows. Mm, okay. All right. Well, let's move on to the next character. Oh, we, we, we have so many interesting characters in this one. Mm-hmm. Richard Mole is in this, playing Hurok. The dinosaur hunter. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, similar, similar. Hurok. Uh, so this is the legendary Richard Mole, born 1943. Um, I, you know, I grew up watching him on reruns of Night Court, in which he plays the, the good-natured giant bailiff, Bull Shannon. Uh, Bull Shannon appears in all nine seasons, all 193 episodes of Night Court. Wow. And it was only much later that I realized that that he, you know, had was already making a name for himself as like a B movie actor before this came out, and then, and then of course he went on to to do a lot of uh, voice acting afterwards, and is still active today. I've never seen Night Court, but uh, Richard Mall is a lot of fun in this movie. He plays this uh, this big warrior of this faction in the movie known as the Cyclopeans. So he's only like one half of his face it has this makeup on where he's only got one eye, but he's like this big tough warrior guy who has a great uh, great battle with uh, size, like uh, like Raphael the Ninja Turtles has, and mm-hmm. with our with our hero Dojin. Yeah, he's. I guess he's kind of Klingon-esque in this. You know, he's the he's mm-hmm. a, a member of this warrior culture. He has, he's he's going to fight, but he's noble, and you know he ends up uh, turning face by the end of it. Uh, now, uh, this was a fun fun fact from the the making of this film. Um, Richard Mole uh, had and still has like a full head of hair. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so he didn't want to shave his head for Metal Storm, uh, uh, you know, but they, they they wanted him to because it ultimately made the makeup that e- much easier. Because if he had his had all of his hair, they were going to have to put a bald cap on him and do all this extra stuff. So they they were like, "Can you can you shave your head for this role?" And he said, "Absolutely not." And then apparently his agent was like, "Like, look, he really needs the work right now. Um, I bet if you offer him five hundred bucks, he'll do it." So they did. They offered him five hundred extra bucks to shave his head, and he did it. Whoa. Um, and as it turned out, it was pilot season at the time, and that was one of the reasons he didn't want to shave his head. Uh, and this was the time period during which he auditioned for Night Court, and they offered him the part, uh, but they loved the look. So they said, you know, it was in his contract that he had to keep his head shaved as long as he was Bull Shannon. So yeah, that's interesting as well. So Metal Storm, uh, indirectly responsible for the creation of a TV icon. Exactly. Yeah. Where would we be? Uh, so... Uh, Richard Mole, um, his first role was playing Joseph Smith in the 1977 film uh, uh, Brigham. But then he went on to do some TV work and finally an increasing number of, of genre films. Evil Speak, The Sword and the Sorcerer, The Dungeon Master, Galaxis. Uh, but I think once he established himself as a comedic actor, that was, that was kind of hard to shake. Though he also shows up as a villain on an episode of Highlander, <laughs> uh, the TV series. Um, and then he... Uh, uh, yeah, he, he's also done some other interesting stuff. Like I say, he was a voice actor. He was in the old Batman the Animated uh, uh, Series. He did the oh. voice of Harvey Dent uh, slash Two-Face. Oh, wow. Batman the Animated Series is great. They recently added that on uh, one of the streaming services, and I'd been watching some old episodes of it. It it still holds up. It's wonderful. Yeah. I, I loved it as a kid. Yeah. Uh, was oh, Now, you said he was in The Sword and the Sorcerer. Was that also one that Richard Lynch was in? Yeah, I believe that's a Richard Lynch picture. Uh, that one's on my list to watch, but I haven't quite got around to it yet. But that's oh, okay. one that is uh, much beloved in some circles. Nice. 
All right, let's move on to another secondary character, this time a secondary villain, the the, the right-hand man to uh, to our man, Jared Sin. This is uh, the character Ball, uh, B-A-A-L, uh, and this is played by R. David Smith. So this is spelled like the like the ancient god Ball, like Lord yes. Lord Ball. Yeah. So Smith acted in various TV shows. Um, he was in, you know, and then also there was this. There was um, there was AI, artificial intelligence. He apparently has a role in that. Hmm. Um, he did stunts on Predator Two, uh, which uh, which is very interesting. So one of the things that becomes obvious as you watch Metal Storm is that uh, is that he's missing uh, part of his left arm. He was born missing his left arm just beneath the elbow. And so he ended up – this was utilized in a number of different films uh, that he did stunt work in uh, or, or in this case acting work. Um, uh, particularly Predator 2, I don't know if you remember it, but there's a part where Danny Glover, our hero, is fighting back against the Predator and manages to slice the Predator's arm off. Mm-hmm. Well, at that point, R. David Smith is playing the Predator. And uh, and apparently played him in this kind of ultimately dangerous repelling scene where like the the predator slides down like a drain pipe or something from the roof to the to the pavement. And much like in so in the Predator movies, the Predator has glowing green blood. And I believe in that sequence in Predator 2, Danny Glover, after the the arm gets cut off, tracks the Predator to his lair by following the splatters Mm -hmm. of blood. There is a scene exactly like that in this movie Played by the same guy, R. David Smith, as Ball gets like his cyber arm ripped off. He's squirting green goop all over the place because that's, I don't know, he just green goop comes out of his arm for some reason. And our hero, the the Mad Max guy, just follows the green blood. Yeah. So interesting, even though this film, of course, was years before Predator 2 came to be. But um, at any rate, uh, he, Ball, the, the Ball character is pretty cool. This perfectly weird-looking character that ultimately helps sell the picture. He's like a cyborg with a robot arm that we'll, we'll, we'll get into the details of his yeah. abilities here in a bit. But uh-huh. he reminds me a bit of the He-Man character uh, that I think came after this, the character Trapjaw. Oh, I don't remember that character. What, what was his deal? I included a picture of him here from uh, like a comic book uh, uh, back in the day uh, so you can see it. But basically he had one robot arm and, of course, huge muscles because that was part of the whole He-Man thing. And then he has like a lower – like he's a cyborg. So he has like a helmet and a lower jaw that's like a a trap, like a bear trap. Oh, yeah. I do see the comparison. Yeah, with the helmet also. because Mm -hmm. So wait, this is even more complicated because Ball in this movie, even though he looks like he's an alien or something, like he's kind of green – and mm-hmm. he's got the the cyborg stuff. He is supposed to be Jared Sin's son. Yes, I, I mean I have no idea how it works, but yeah, it, I mean I don't know. It, it we don't know that that Jared Sin is Ball's birth father. I mean we, we're not sure what we're not privy to the details oh, okay. on this yeah. relationship, but uh, but they do seem close. Okay. All right. Finally, just uh, I already mentioned him, but Richard Band did the music. This is Charles mm-hmm. Band's brother, an accomplished film score composer. His work tends to be, you know, very traditional but effective. Sometimes suitably cheesy. Mm-hmm. You know, he's worked on pictures like Terror Vision before, and like that's the perfect place for slightly cheesy uh, traditional music. Yeah, um, uh, I watched this movie with subtitles, and the, a lot of good humor came out of the bracketed subtitles telling me what kind of music was playing. Orchestral, you know, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. So it would just show uh, Jared Sin, like with the flat haircut, staring into the camera, looking like he's composing a really angry, like I don't know, internet reply in his brain, and staring ahead, and then it just mm-hmm. says like ominous orchestral music brackets. 
<laughs> yeah, now speaking of composing, the other interesting thing, like I said, a lot of this film apparently came together on a very tight, very tight budget, but then also mm-hmm. a very tight schedule. Yeah. A band had to do all the music in something like 11 days. Wow. Yeah, like compose, record, everything. <laughs> All right, you ready for a full plot breakdown? Let's do it. Now, I got to say, there is a very nice 3D title sequence. I always love those. And you can always tell. So I, I when I rented this, didn't realize it was a 3D movie. Uh, but I could tell as soon as I saw the credits, because it's that style where they're the blocky letters that you can just see them like with this dimensionality that would not really be there if they weren't intended to jump out of the screen at you. When we get our first glimpse of uh, of real action, it is, in A Taste of Things to Come, a driving montage. Uh, I thought that would be appropriate because, I, I don't know, what, what percentage of this movie's runtime would you guess is made up of driving? A lot of it. <laughs> a lot of it, yeah. Like, like, I, like I mentioned, uh, I believe it was... Um I believe it was Richard Band who brought up that they didn't speed up the driving sequences and uh. that they ended up running the, the credits. I didn't notice this when I watched it, but the credits run exceedingly slow on various cuts of this picture uh-huh. uh, so that it takes up as much time as possible. Uh, so Richard Band says this is actually one of the rare movies where there's more music than there is film. I'd say there's a solid 72 minutes of film content in this movie, and then the rest mm. is credits. <laughs> Now, uh, the driving sequences, though, or like I say, they're not boring. They have some really cool-looking vehicles. Uh, we immediately meet our hero's vehicle. This is the – I come to think, came to think of it as the dog skull doom truck because uh-huh. uh, it yeah. looks kind of like a dog skull. It looks like what might happen if you took the dog truck from Dumb and Dumber and you boiled all the flesh and hair <laughs> off of it. Yes, 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 yes. It's got. It's even got teeth. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's got a little grate on the bottom and some kind of cow catcher type thing, but it looks yep. like teeth. Uh, so, yeah, as soon as you pointed that out, I saw it. It's dog skull every time. And so, of course, the driver of dog truck here is our hero, the the man named Dojin, which I guess is appropriate since he drives the dog truck. And he is, as we described earlier, he's a scruffy, sweaty earthrim roamer dressed exactly like Mad Max in The Road Warrior, black leather up and down in this hot, dusty desert. Seems like maybe not the best choice, uh, but perhaps that's why he's always so shiny and sweaty. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he, yeah, he's playing some kind of cop of the post-apocalyptic wilderness. He's driving around with a helmet on at first, but then he, he takes the helmet off and you hear him getting some kind of radio transmission. Uh, they're, they're, you know, they're saying like, Hey, Ranger, Ranger, uh, they're, they're, they're calling him about some kind of crystal interference. And so he drives out to meet the challenge while a bunch of very determined sounding orchestral music plays, you know, dun, 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 mm-hmm. um, and then there's a road battle. So Dojin is attacked in his dog truck by a cyclopean warrior who's only got one eye, who is flying on a speeder in the air and trying to blast the dog truck with lasers. They have a laser shootout. Uh, I, the effects are cheap, but like I said earlier, I like them, even though they're cheap. I, I would say this is very much in my rub the fur category type movie, but it, it's cheap synthetic fur, but it still feels pretty good. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like when you're watching a play, uh, like a like on the stage, uh-huh. and it has special effects. You know, those special effects, be it something like a, a red handkerchief representing blood and all. Uh, you know, just because it doesn't look real doesn't mean that it it doesn't have its own sort of style, and that it can't be um, 
you know, it can't be effective. And then you, you can't adjust your viewing. Uh, you know, you can't suspend disbelief to meet like the level of the artistic medium. Yeah, yeah. And I would agree that I would say the, the effects in this movie are fun, despite being cheap and not super convincing uh, in the same way that the effects or the sets or whatever in a good play can be. Mm hmm. So they have a shootout. Dojin wins the battle. The the speeder crashes into a cliff and explodes. Uh, this movie is absolutely of the school of any time a vehicle crashes, it explodes in a fireball. Yes. Always. 100% of the time. So Dojin goes up to explore the crashed Cyclopean vehicle, and he finds among the wreckage a red crystal. And this will be the first crystal of the movie, but by no means the last, because if there are two things this movie is obsessed with, it is driving sequences and crystals. Yeah, a lot of crystals in this movie. If you own a crystal store, uh, you should have this playing in the background at all times. Oh, yeah. It'll really convince people of their power, too. Yeah. I mean, the dark crystal probably has more crystals in it than this movie, but I can't think of another film no, that has. That has wrong. Yeah, this movie has more crystals than the dark crystal. <laughs> you may be right. Now, uh, yeah, we now from here we cut to a mining scene because we get this is the whole thing about the crystals is like this is the planet. I guess is this a diff is this Earth or is this a different planet? They never make that clear. I don't okay. know if this is supposed to be far in the future or just some alternate fantasy realm. That, that's never fully clear. It doesn't. It doesn't ever in any explicit way connect to real history, so we don't know. Uh, but yeah, we get some crystal mining, and this is where Kelly Preston and her dad, uh, not the actress's dad, but the character of this character's dad they're drilling for crystals with these little handheld tools in a mine shaft and kelly preston's character's name is diana uh and they make clear that this is like an old mine that's been abandoned by the original miners and i was i have to admit i was having like a little um, no man's sky flashback here because here we have these characters in a weirdly shaped cavern with uh and they're they're mining weird crystals that are yeah. everywhere with a weird space gun it's like a uh, laser so, yeah yeah, yeah. So it's like straight up no man's sky i was afraid i was about to spend like an hour and a half uh, tediously collecting these crystals with these characters so that you can buy like a shorter cooldown period for your mining gun yeah 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 uh, yeah, and so the the characters here. So the dad is sort of reminiscent of Sam Elliott as the stranger. He's sort of affable, gray haired with a mustache, mm -hmm. and uh, we get a little bit of a window into the politics or the world building here because Kelly Preston says, you know, "Treaty or not, I don't like being in nomad territory. They don't allow trespassers." And the dad says, "They'll never even know we were here." And then immediately, uh, Kelly Preston finds a gigantic crystal. It's the size of a thermos. And then the dad is like, wow, we're rich. And so they take it outside to look at it in the light. Uh, they're standing around the opening of the mine. And uh, I, I wanted to point out quickly, there's one set dressing detail I really like here at the mine. There's this giant pile of some kind of flexible tubes or hoses that are just coiled chaotically all over the place. And it looks like mm -hmm. a giant battle mech just spilled its intestines. Yeah, I think they, they filmed a lot of these sequences in a quarry, but they, they dressed it up nicely. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, I, I mean, I ultimately bought this. The thing is, in the viewing it visually, I bought this as another world, but I never got enough information from the film to know if like the nomad territory is uh. an entire planet. Is it part of another planet? What sort what's going on? What's the what's the interstellar community like? Nothing. Uh, so, like I say, is this Earth? Is this an alien world? No this clue. is maybe something to think about as we go on. The question of what makes good world building versus bad world building. And as much as 
as much fun as this movie is in a, you know, uh, other movie mashup elements in a blender, rub the fur kind of stuff. This, this movie I, I would say is a very bad example of world building. I don't understand the world and it does not seem very interesting. But it's full of interesting characters and we yeah. immediately meet some of them. Yeah, that's right. So we get the bad guys coming in. They're, they're outside. Oh, look at the crystal. We're rich. Immediately ambushed by Ball and his Cyclops enforcers. So Ball is the, the cyborg guy with a cyborg arm. And so Kelly Preston hides in the mine while her dad gets attacked by these guys. They come up on him. They, they say, like, you can't be here. You're not allowed to be here. The law says you must die. And so they grab his crystal and they smash it on the ground. They sentence him to death. And then the form the execution takes is one of the, the strangest and most elaborate that I've ever seen in a movie. They've got laser guns there, but they don't just shoot him. Instead, it's a four-step process, right? And I'd say the process is squirt, trip, crystal, die. Mm-hmm. This is wonderful. <laughs> so the squirt is that Baal, has, on his cyber arm, he squirts green goo on you, and then the and then the green goo makes you hallucinate and the hallucination transports you to another plane of existence like another dimension and then in that other dimension jared sin is there and he's holding a red crystal and then he touches you with the red crystal and then you die and this is a wonderful sequence because the other realm is is realized as this kind of place where it's like black gravel on the ground. And yeah. It's just infinite darkness uh, all around you. And then once you're there, here comes Jared Sin strolling yeah. casually up to you, just exceptionally well lit, like just the right amount of shadow and light. Strolls up to you with this smoldering look on his face, reaches out with the red crystal, touches you on the side of the neck, and you scream in anguish and presumably die. And and he gets the meat. Yeah. And so, yeah, and it's very darkness washed over the dude because it's the <laughs> Sam Elliott guy, guy here dying. Uh, and so the bad guys, they, they kill him and then they leave. And then Dojin arrives in his dog truck to the rescue, but he's too late. The the dad character has already uh, been crystalled here. Uh, and instead he meets Kelly Preston. And here we get some kind of plot because uh, Dojin says the following to Diana. Let's see if you can follow this. Okay. He says, you've been isolated. You haven't heard. Treaty's been broken. There's a madman named Jared Sin who's been inciting the nomads. There's holy war again. This whole crystal mines in forbidden territory. Okay. <laughs> so maybe this is a good place to see because we're not going to like uh, recap every new piece of information we get as we go. But it, maybe this is a good place to try to figure out what is the situation of this film. All right. This is this is the plot as I understand it. Okay. Okay. Um, this planet is a wasteland overrun by two factions. You've got the humanoid nomads who always wear environmental protection gear. I'm not sure why, uh, because our heroes don't. Uh, perhaps they're from another planet or, you know, this is, or maybe it's due to continued exposure to hostile conditions or maybe it's a religious choice. Yeah. I'm not sure. But that's the nomads. Okay. Permanent gas mask and they mm -hmm. wear like a hood. And then you have the Cyclopeans, and this is a race of large, powerful warriors, again, kind of Klingon-esque, and they seem to have a congenital mutation that has obscured half their face. So half of their face is just kind of like twisted mutant flesh, and there's either not an eyeball there or the eyeball is completely obscured by flesh. Okay, I think maybe I misinterpreted this as them having like all ritually gouged out one of their eyes. Hmm. I mean, I don't... 
I, I don't think there's anything in the film that says one way or another. So it's okay. ultimately a fair idea. I think in some of the supplemental information, uh, like the interviews, I think they may have referred to it as a, kind of like a congenital treatment that okay. they gave it because they, they ultimately wanted to go the mutant route and have and go with this because they, they thought that it might look too crappy if they just did the one eye in the center of the face, uh-huh. which I have to agree. I mean, you think of, of Cyclopses when they show up in other films, even with films with a lot bigger budgets than this one, yeah. and it can look a little off because yeah. at least this way, the actor is getting to to act with their one unobscured eye. That's true, yeah. So like Richard Mole, for example, he has, a, he has great eyebrows, very expressive eyebrows, and he gets, still gets to use one of them in this film. So yeah, they're paying up for at least actors who are potentially going to be, you know, expressively getting into the parts. Like I'd say Richard Mole is maybe the most expressive faced actor in the movie. Mm-hmm. If they were to completely cover up his face, that would be that would be a heck of a loss. Yeah. All right, so the, that's that's what's going on with the, like the occupants of this land. Okay. And the main attraction here, crystal mining, of course, including powerful red crystals that can drain and collect human soul power and enable individuals uh, to to utilize that power to give themselves like like wizarding type abilities. So the yes. warlord Jared Sin is amassing all this crystal power in order to control the entire world, maybe worlds beyond. We're not sure. Uh, I'm not sure how local this dispute uh, ultimately is. And then Dogen is the hunter sent to stop him. Kelly Preston's character, Diana, gets ro- roped into it because she wants revenge for her father. Uh-huh. And that's pretty much where we are. Okay, yeah. And so there is a territorial dispute, right? It's that the nomads and the cyclopeans, both they they are have some kind of grievance about their land and they want their land back from... I think another faction who we barely encounter in the movie who are like the crystal miners mm-hmm. and Jared Sin is promising the the nomads and the Cyclopeans their land back from the crystal miners. Is that how you understood it? Yeah, I think so. Okay. So he's like, you put me in charge. I'll get you your land. Mm-hmm. And he seems to he seems to be you know going with this. He seems to have some momentum. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, so he's using the red crystals to, to you know, crystal gack people, and, and that's working for him. And then so, yeah, so we, of course, uh, hear, hear Dojin and Kelly Preston. They become friends. We get uh, Brackett's gentle orchestral music, and they, they decide that they're going to work together to avenge the death of her father, hunt Jared Sin, and solve the mystery of the red crystal. So, you know, the, the plot is underway. And then, of course, we get to meet the villain. I, well, I suppose we sort of met him before in the vision where he does the red crystal on Sam mm-hmm. Elliott. But uh, he uh, but then we, we meet him in person. And when we meet him in person, he's wearing this hilarious armor we mentioned earlier, this like bubble muscle armor uh, that looks kind of like inflated foam pads. And it's this strange mix of it's like semi anatomical. So you've seen armor before that has contours on it that are supposed to match human muscles. Mm -hmm. And this sort of has that because it's there for like the pecs and the abs, but there are other parts that just have all these little like bubbles and contours that have nothing to do with human anatomy. I, yeah, again, I have to say, I think it's strong costuming because if it looked too much like human anatomy, he would look like the biggest dummy in the world in this thing, you know? Yes. Uh, but it's just the right level uh, of, of, of musculature and armor and, and like alien weirdness that it, it somehow works well, despite uh, the elements that are coming together here. So when we first encounter him, Jared Sin is in a cave surrounded by the nomads, who are the people wearing the gas masks, and Cyclops warriors. 
And he's just waving a red crystal around in their faces saying, with this crystal, we have the power to steal life. Uh, which when I first saw it, I was like, wait a minute, couldn't you also do that with one of those laser guns or, or just like a big club? Uh, and then he's promising no one can stop me now. And he, and then at the end, he's like, Oh, I do this for you, my brothers, uh, because he's offering, he's clearly trying to get them on his side because by promising them some kind of outcome. And then I guess to demonstrate the power of the red crystal, which seems utterly superfluous because we just saw what it could do to the other guy Mm -hmm. in the, in the previous scene, but they bring him a prisoner and this guy's there like, no, no. And Jiritsen walks up, touches his neck with the red crystal and he just goes gag and he dies. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, the, 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 whole, the whole reason to use crystals and not laser guns is because the crystal harvests the soul energy. Yes. And Jared Sin gets to use it later. Like his powers seem to come uh, out of his harvesting of, of life force. That's right. The crystal doesn't just kill people. It's an external hard drive for souls. So when you touch somebody, you download their soul into the crystal and then you bring it back to Jared Sin and then he touches the crystal to his really big crystal and that uploads the souls into it. And when he gets enough souls in the big crystal, he's going to use that as an army to take over the world. Yeah. So you can't say that this movie doesn't make sense. No, Look at all the sense we're laying out sense. here. Uh, but of course, the characters don't know this yet. So when you come back to Kelly Preston and uh, and, and Jeffrey Byron, uh, they, they got to take the red crystal they found to their crystal guy. You know, they, oh, you got a crystal guy? Yeah, I got one. So they go to the crystal guy so he can explain what it does. Yeah. And he's kind of this fire tuck looking um, character in this cave. With crystals hanging around everywhere, um, I like him. Not the yeah, he's he's fun. This actor, I think his name is Marty uh, Z- uh, Zagon or Zagon. I'm not mm-hmm. sure which. Uh, looked him up. He's been, he was in a number of things over the years, but this is probably one of the least effective looking sets. Yes, <laughs> but uh, in, in the picture, but it's 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 kind of fun in its cheapness. Yeah, he's got a crystal diagnostic process. He's trying to figure out what their crystal does, and so he hangs it off of a fishing line sort of along a string of other crystals like their christmas lights and they're all wrapped around these uh these shelves made out of pvc pipes and then he shoots the crystal with a laser and then the laser bounces around between different crystals and that tells him something about what it does and of course what it does is it harvests that soul energy right he says i should have known storage crystal storage of what life force uh, so they've got that figured out. But then also he goes and he looks at it and he's like, oh, yeah, I see some emblems here. He says this is uh, Emblem of Set, the Lost City. And uh, and Kelly Preston says, oh, the Lost City. My father told me stories of this place. And so they get a tip off from their crystal guide that there's a man who can take them to the Lost City. And his name is Rhodes. Uh, crystal guy says he was once a finder. He lives in Zoar, one of those overnight crystal mining towns. Hmm. So before we get to all that, there's uh, there are some more action scenes that don't have a huge import on the plot. There's just like road battles, driving, uh, car chases, and, and explosions with uh, with Bal and the Cyclops troops. And uh, and of course, as I said earlier, it's of the classical school, which is that when a car crashes, it explodes, giant fireball. Uh, but they get captured by Bal, and uh, every, I don't think we said this before, but every time Bal talks, he sounds like a text to speech uh, editor or like. Um, do you ever have one of those toys when you were a kid that was like the plastic microphone that made your voice sound weird and echoey when you would talk mm-hmm. through it? Yep, yep, yep. He has that kind of voice. I think he. I think maybe he's talking through something like that. Uh, but so he he says, "Welcome, welcome to your death." 
And then there's a big fight. Uh, and in this fight, Dojin does get squirted by the green goo. So you think, oh, he's done for, right? You know, squirted by the goo, that means he's going to hallucinate. Then he's going to get red crystalled. But it it isn't like when Kelly Preston's dad got squirted. Uh, it seems to affect him more slowly. So you see later that night, he's sort of laying by the campfire, being cradled by Diana. And he starts having visions of Jared Sin. But Jared Sin's evil crystal magic does not work in the hallucination. And Jared Sin explains, he says, well, together you're strong, but I'll separate you and I'll destroy you both. <laughs> and so, of course, Dojin and Diana are just immediately falling in love for no discernible reason. But they're, yeah, just, yeah. they're just both like, I love you now. <laughs> Their bond is so strong that his evil psychic crystal magic can't stop them. But they clearly, they just met. They just yeah, met. They just met earlier this day, and we have seen no no reason for them to have emotional connection whatsoever. They They yeah. seem to have shared nothing, really, except that they went to the crystal guy together. Yeah, that's it. But, you know, they, I guess life is hard in the wasteland and, and you find love where you can. So they just both they're immediately head over heels in love with each other. And uh, and their bond is so strong that even the magic can't break it. But that's all right, because Jared Sin, he can work with this. He can work with this. He's yeah. got some plans. Yeah. And his plan is that, it, well, first we see him just sitting there stewing and we get brackets that say mysterious orchestral music. Mm -hmm. And then Diana back at the campfire turns red and disappears. Yeah. Then and that's, that's the red crystal energy. He basically he teleports her away from where she is and brings him to his uh, camp. That seems like a really good power. So if he could do that, why didn't you just do that with uh, with the guy he's trying to kill? Like you can teleport him into the tent and they can just get him there. Why not? Well, I mean, well, we don't know what else he's got going on. You know, he's he's got big plans. It probably requires big crystal energy that he's mm -hmm. having to, you know, if, if he takes time to to teleport everybody that opposes him, you know, he's not going to have the crystal energy he needs for all that stuff. So he would prefer not to, but he has to now. But then there's a sequence that was one of my favorites in the movie, and this involved some some uh, special effects and design that I thought actually looked really good. Mm -hmm. uh, this is the part with the crystal golem attack. So Jared Sin has a little crystal doll that he like that he hallucinate teleports through time and space to turn into a giant monster that attacks Dojin at his campfire. Yeah, which is it's ultimately like a, this really cool all white. Uh, practical monster suit, but then they've added, uh, you know, animated electricity sparks around him. Like not, certainly not on the same level of intricacy as you find uh, with the the lightning warrior in Big Trouble in Little China, but mm -hmm. that in the neighborhood of that sort of effect. Yeah, yeah. So he's this cool luminous monster with a mask that I liked. Uh, it's kind of a, uh, uh, almost like a ring wraith kind of head. Mm-hmm. And then so Dojin has to like he's using his laser on it, but that doesn't work. And he has to kill it by like tricking it into stepping into some kind of liquid. I didn't quite understand this part, but maybe it's the movie logic that this thing is electrical and electric things can't touch water. Doesn't he like shoot a rock and liquid comes out of the rock and then yeah. the monster steps into it? That felt weirdly um, Old Testament to me. Like, yeah. Isn't there isn't there something where like Moses shoots a rock with a laser gun and I, liquid comes out of it? I don't know. Well, he strikes a, a rock with his staff and water comes out of it. There you go. Same thing. Okay. Uh, well, whatever this connects to, I wasn't aware. I didn't understand what happened here, but, you know, I'll roll with it. So 
So anyway, uh, we we get to see uh, Kelly Preston at Jared Sin's place, and he's showing her how the big crystal soul hard drive works, uh, and and he's uh, he's storing the souls in the big crystal to turn it into an army that will crush anyone who opposes him. And there there are all these people watching, and it was actually you know I was thinking it's kind of like one of those uh, tech presentations. You know, like mm-hmm. the Apple thing where he's got this big audience and he's like, let me show you how my big crystal hard drive works. <laughs> Everybody, you know, it's the it's the it's the killer app. Everybody's got to have one. And then next, Dojin goes to find Rhodes. Uh, so he goes to a place that is I'm, I think this is supposed to be the most Isley Cantina. He goes to a minor camp, uh, and some people in this camp are wearing strange future clothes, or they're dressed like shepherds or whatever. Some mm-hmm. of them are wearing the robes. Other people here are just wearing 1980s American clothes, just jeans and T-shirts. Yep. And he goes into a bar that is like the – it's the most likely bar, but with no aliens, so I think lower lower budget – and he meets the bartender, Annie, who I, I loved, by the way. Uh, I thought she was great. And her bar consists of a counter. And then, again, th- this movie is fun of sets made out of just lattice of PVC pipe. Mm-hmm. So there are these, these pipe sets behind her. And then there's they're just wrapped up with random hoses and neon lights and then a big snake. There's just a snake in the background. Uh, but she she's like, oh, yeah, you're looking for Rhodes. He's over there. And, of course, it's our old friend Tim Thomerson, who is this grizzled old Han Solo living life at the bottom of a bottle. He is content to sit at the corner of the bar and have no friend but alcohol. Right. He is. I think at one point he tells us later in the film he's getting too old for this stuff. Again, yes. 37. <laughs> But, of course, Dojin's like, hey, I need to find the lost city because I'm taking on Jared Sin. And we get the classic Han Solo-style refusal of the call. He says, sorry, kid, treasure hunting's one thing. Getting killed's another. So he's like, I'm not going to risk my neck on some fool errand like this. Uh, Mm -hmm. So anyway, Dojin tries to leave. But then there's this high noon-style shootout in the street. And this was another thing where, uh, having watched it twice now, I still don't understand what happened here. Uh I'll try to explain. Dojin goes outside and there are these just guys beating up on one of the Cyclops dudes. Mm -hmm. And then he and then Dojin and then they walk away from him. Then Dojin walks over to the Cyclops dude and looks at him. And then the guys who were beating him up, they turn around and they look at Dojin and then start pulling guns on him in slow motion like a like a gunslinger duel. Yeah, I was thinking that this scene was setting up. the 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 main Cyclops character, the, the Richard Mole character, mm-hmm. uh, because this seems like the way you would typically introduce somebody. Oh, well, you, well, you just saved me, and now I'm your your a part of your party. You know, yeah. this seems like the standard Dungeons and Dragons character introduction scenario, but it doesn't work out like that at all. No, why did the guys pull the guns on him? Like, what did he do? What what did he have to do with them in any way? I don't know. I guess just a rough part of town. Okay. Yeah. It didn't seem to make any sense, but they, they disarm him. They shoot the gun out of our hero's hand and it's, he doesn't even dodge. He just stands there. He's like, okay, I'm ready to be vaporized. Mm -hmm. But Tim Thomerson to the rescue. It's like the, you know, uh, it's like Han Solo showing up with the Millennium Falcon at the, at the trench run, Uh, you know, and he, he shoots the gun out of the bad guy's hand and, uh, and he's on board now, I guess, for some reason. Mm-hmm. He's on board for some driving, and that's what they're going to do. So, so they just go driving for a while. I think they're trying to find this lost city. And there's a an exchange I wrote down where uh, where Dojin says to him, "You must have fought in the Sand Wars, yeah? So what? 
that's when they stopped issuing those uniforms. So I think huh. that's supposed to be comedy. Like he's, you know, you're wearing old, old uniform clothes. Yeah, he he's old. That's kind of the. But then also, uh, it it also the Sand Wars. Uh, just dropping that without context, it it's, yeah. it sounds a bit like the Clone Wars uh, mention in the original Star Wars film, you know, except less mysterious. <laughs> yeah. So they go to these Cyclopean ruins. I think the Lost City is supposed to be this great, like ancient sacred burial ground that has been abandoned where the the ancestors of the Cyclopean people lived. And I thought this sequence was great. It is mm-hmm. it takes place next to what looks like a filled in open top mining pit. So if you've ever seen those where, you know, the it's been uh dug out from the top down and then now it's just filled in with green water that's very still. Yeah, and there's just this gnarly, ultimately death metal-y look. Like, this thing could be the cover of a death metal album because yeah. it's like this weird uh, Bahamut-esque cyclopean uh, cyclops god with uh, weird ruins and strange script all around it. It's it's really cool looking. Yeah, and, and this statue, the cyclops statue, is over this treasure box that Dojin opens, and it's very Indiana Jones because this yellow light pours out of the treasure box when he— gets into it and inside he finds this mask it is the magic mask that has been spoken of in legend yeah and then afterwards they're walking around in the mist and there's been some foreshadowing of this because we saw the sands shifting behind them and they get attacked by some really great sand creatures that i think are (laughs) literally hand puppets but i love them great cheap effect uh little subterranean pig snakes that are biting our heroes on the legs yeah. Now, uh, you don't see it in this, but apparently they had arms. Like, I saw a picture of, like, the full creature they made, mm-hmm. and they ultimately have little arms, but they do just look like um, like snake puppets in this. But they look pretty cool. And and also, ultimately, what, there were three of them? That's reminiscent of, uh, of Tremors later on uh, when we get the Tremors movie. Because remember, the Graboids had, I think, what, they had three hand puppet-like appendages inside of their beaked mouth. That's right. Okay. So eventually they're escaping with the mask, but here we get to meet uh, the, the night court guy. So, so what happens here? Oh, well, they run into these warriors and the warriors are like, hey, what you doing here? Well, mm-hmm. what's your whole reason? And they start laying down Cyclops law on them. Right, right. So, the, yeah, they say, uh, uh, the guy says, having, having come this far, you've proven you're a warrior, but being found on our land, you must die. That is our law. And then Tim Thomerson's like, hold it. A warrior must also be given the chance to take the challenge. That is also the law. So I find it interesting that Tim Thomerson knows his Cyclops civil rights. <laughs> so the, so Hurok, the Cyclops guy, uh, is like, okay, fine. You, know, you must meet me in the pit. And then they, they have a duel where their hands are tied together via this tether. Uh, and then in the other hands, they have Psy, like Raphael has in, in the Ninja Turtles. And and of course, guess who wins? But 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 uh, Mad Max shows mercy to the Cyclops guy. He's got him on the ground, but he doesn't kill him. And like, oh, what a stand-up guy Mad Max is. And then um, Richard Mole's like, well, now we're friends. Uh, mm-hmm. And he informs him. He's like, I know you're looking for Jared Sin. I've been called to a war council by Jared Sin. Uh, we can't go there together, but but maybe I'll see you there. Yeah, we'll, we'll meet up later. Now there's some other stuff that happens in between. There are more, the more road battles, more car chases, uh, you know, shooting, shooting at each other from cars. A lot of these battles are between Dojin and Tim Thomerson on one side, and then Ball and his people on the other. 
Uh, and I will say in this attack, there are some stunts that look very real, and I'm not sure how exactly they were accomplished. I, I kind of wonder if something very unsafe happened on set. Uh, but Dojin at one point drives the dog truck off of an embankment, and it really just looks like the truck lands on a couple of Ball's troops. I, I don't know oh, how yeah, they accomplished it looks, Or at that. least it comes dangerously close to yeah. these guys. Where I'm like, whew, that was that was a little too real. Yeah. There's also a scene where a guy comes flying through the windshield of a vehicle at the camera for that 3D effect, uh-huh. and and that one too was like, oh, that's it's kind of rough. That's these these stunt guys were going for it. Yeah, so as long as that was done in an actually safe way, uh, hats off to to the stunt people there. That's yeah. It looks good. But then after the battle, we get a vision, and this part's great. Uh, We get the crystal mask, the magic mask, and Dojin puts it on and has some adventures in the Shadow Realm. He sees visions of a flaming tree and a sort of red light district of the mind. There's just this red light in the fog everywhere, Mm -hmm. and he produces a mind hatchet and whacks at the tree, and then the tree's bleeding. It's good stuff. Yeah, he's also shirtless and oiled up. The whole time. Mm-hmm. So this, along with the other Shadow Realm sequence, these are shot, like, I think entirely in a set. Uh, and the lighting is, like, really, really well done. So th- these are some of the most beautiful and weird uh, segments in the entire picture. Yeah. So Dojin and Tim Thomerson get ambushed by Bal and his troops. And in the fight, they actually rip off Bal's cyber arm. And then the mm-hmm. green goo squirts everywhere and the bad guys run away. Tim Thomerson is wounded, and you know, I wonder what will happen to him. Dojin promises, I'll be back for you, buddy. And so he's like He just leaves him yeah, just leaves there him. in yeah. the dust <laughs> yeah. amid the ruin and the death. And he's like, I'll come check on you later. And Thomerson's like, all right. Fine. Yeah, and he follows the, the green slime trail to the villains, like in Predator, like I said earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, and then back at Jared Sin's place, Baal is, of course, wounded, and he's very mad. He's like, you have to kill Kelly Preston now. And Jared Sin says, nope. Uh, Kelly Preston and Mad Max, they're going to be my final sacrifices to the crystal. Uh, but in the meantime, it's time to go tell the troops. And so he goes outside where the nomads and the Cyclopeans are waiting. They're all watching like they're, uh, you know, watching to see the dolphin show or like the, the, you know, the Apple iPhone demonstration or whatever. And he shows off people downloading souls from their little red crystals into his big crystal. And he mm-hmm. says, we'll be kings of our land again forever. <laughs> and of course, Dojin arrives during the big presentation. And I thought it was really funny how he just walks in like nobody kills him. Nobody even tries to stop him. It, he just walks in and the additionally funny thing is he's just holding this magic crystal mask in his hand. Yeah. Well, it it looks, it's hard to imagine how you would really wear, I mean, maybe he's wearing it briefly in the vision world, but it also doesn't, I got the impression like this is not made for a human being to wear. This is like an alien mask or something. Yeah, I think so. So you get a uh, bowel of course is like, ah, that's the guy I've been fighting, kill him. But then Hurok, who is now, because he is friend that, you know, he steps in and it's bowel versus Hurok. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, and at this point we quickly realize that Jared sends uh, claim to rule is is just very tenuous and yes. e- very easily overturned. Yeah, I thought it was funny that the final battle here is really one of persuasion rather than violence, and it's not even that difficult. Dogecoin is just like, he goes up in front of everybody, and he's like, Jared Sin is bad. And then the Cyclopeans are like, hey, he's right. <laughs> yeah, no real evidence presented. Like, he didn't give a PowerPoint or or display any evidence. He's just like, like this guy sucks. And they're like, yeah, he's right. Yeah. And then, uh, that's it. Jared Sin does not do very well in defending himself, though, because I wrote down one of the actual exchanges. Dojin says, like, 
he says something like he's using you. He wants to rule over you all. And then Jared Sin responds by saying, let him babble. I am your master. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Which the, the Cyclopeans immediately reject. They're like, yeah. you're not our master. Yeah. Herak uh, says, Jared Sin is a false chief. This is false metal. And then there's some crystal zapping. Jared Sin is like, well, uh, uh, uh oh, the jig is up. Well, now I'm just going to try to zap everybody who doesn't go along with me. So he uses his big crystal to shoot lasers at people. And here's where the magic mass comes in. It seems that this is the purpose. Dojin uses it to deflect a laser blast from the big crystal. It works like a sort of mirror shield that uh, shoots back in the other direction. And he does this like twice and then Bal smashes the mask, which is funny. It seems like a relatively small return on the investment of that whole plot line in the middle of the movie. If this is what the mask did. Yeah, it didn't. It didn't seem to make a huge difference in the battle. So yeah. anyway, so Jared Sin's like, well, okay, uh, this didn't work out for me, so I'm getting out of here. So he runs off, gets on his airspeeder to escape, and then there's an airspeeder chase because uh, Dogecoin also gets on an airspeeder and they chase each other around. This part might have been cooler in 3D, but here I think the ending chase is pretty weak. It's a lot of aerial footage of just POV zooming over scrubland. Uh, yeah, some and, miniatures thrown in as well. Yes, yes. Until Jaredson finally, uh, at some point, he just escapes into the Phantom Zone. Like, they go into this realm of triangles. There's a kind of cool psychedelic sequence when that happens. But Jaredson gets away. Uh, Dojin is unable to catch him. He's gone to Triangle Land, and, and we don't know if he will ever be coming back. Yeah, uh, at the end, we're, we're, I guess we're, le- yeah, we're left with this idea that Sin has escaped to another dimension, perhaps another time and space, which they allude to. They're like, he could be anywhere. He could be in any place, any time, which kind of sounds like they're, they were setting up the possibility that they could do a cheap sequel where, uh, where, where uh, our Road Warrior character is chasing Jared Sin into, say, like, you know, contemporary Los Angeles. Right. Yeah, that's what we were talking about at the beginning with, like, Jared Sin in Beverly Hills or Jared Sin goes to New York. Yeah, like basically Beastmaster 2, which we know how that turned out. So maybe it's best that we didn't follow <laughs> Sin into such a world. But on the other hand, uh, in the, the, the extras on this, they, they mentioned in passing that, that Band already had some big ideas for the sequel that involved like giant robots. Mm-hmm. But of course he got to do that in, in subsequent pictures. So um, who knows, who knows what, what a uh, metal storm two might've consisted of had it ever come, come to pass, you know, should we still be holding out for Jaredson too? You think it's possible at this point? I mean, no, I mean, <laughs> I, I guess it, it would, I assume if band still had, had retained the rights to it, we would have seen something like that at some point, right? I mean, why not? But I don't know. I think ultimately the film did not, it did not do well, um, critically anyway. Uh, you know, it, it ended up on a lot of, uh, a lot of screens, but it didn't. Hmm. I think you had, you had a number of different elements going on there. I think there was like some 3D fatigue, uh, going on. And uh, you know, some, some those 1983 critics don't know how to rub the fur. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, maybe also like Road Warrior, Star Wars uh, inspired pictures of the early 80s at the time. Maybe there just were a lot of them and uh-huh. we're able to better appreciate them now because nobody's really putting out that kind of stuff. Like where are the I mean, I guess if, and if they do, were putting them out today, they probably I mean, it would probably it just wouldn't be the same. It, it wouldn't it wouldn't be shot on film. It would be a different uh, scenario altogether. Nobody has room in their heart for a PG Mad Max ripoff. You know, that is where ultimately Jared Sin escaped. He escaped into our hearts. 
uh, into yeah. the hearts of, of future generations of, of weird film enthusiasts. Oh, also, the end of the movie is 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 quite sappy and sentimental in the same way because, of course, Tim Thomerson's fine. He arrives at mm-hmm. the end as the chauffeur of dog truck, and and uh, and uh, Jeffrey Byron and Kelly Preston are there, and he's like, "Hey, hop in! I'll you know I got a big bandage on my head. I'll drive you wherever you want." Yep, <laughs> and then they're off. Yeah, and they're just just uh, bantering into the sunset. So ultimately, yeah, this is a really fun film with a lot of weird stuff going on in it. Uh, I, I I don't think there was really – I mean, I, re, I saw some stuff about reviews at the time that were like, oh, this is boring, you know, and they were comparing it to uh, to your, the what, the warrior from the future. Um, Hunter from the future. Yes, Hunter from the future, uh, that, that sort of thing. But I don't know. I didn't think there was really much in the way of boring uh, – uh, content in this film. I felt like visually there was a lot going on. I, I, I enjoyed it, though I think that the trailer probably delivers just as much wonder as the full film does. So um, <laughs> uh-huh. if, if you're looking to get out cheap on this one, you could just watch the trailer. I fully agree they could have sped up the driving. Uh, I think this is one of those movies. I mean, if you are making a movie and you're putting significant driving in the movie, unless it's really, really top-notch driving stuff, like you are George Miller and you are making a Mad Max movie, otherwise I I would say cut out significant amounts of driving and you're probably making an improvement. Yeah. But they do hit all the cliches with the uh, with the with the apocalyptic driving. You know, you have mm-hmm. the you have a car go off the side of a cliff and explode, uh, multiple cars exploding. They do that that wonderful um, car stunt. I'm sure it has a specific name because it's done all the time. The one where a car will hit a ramp with only one side of it, and there'll generally be some stuff to obscure the fact that there's a ramp there, uh-huh. and it makes the car flip um, up on two wheels. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I always love seeing that one, especially if I can see the ramp. Sometimes they really mess up and you see like an actual ramp behind some trash cans. Yeah. I think that happens in Final Sacrifice, the Rousedower movie. So, yeah, it's not Fury Road, but it it has its pleasures. Yeah. And I will say again that no, no matter how half-formed some of the ideas for the film might have been, I feel like the the the, the crew, that the people acting in it, the, the, the crew creating the effects and the costumes and dressing up the, the, the settings, the, uh, as, you know, as well as, um, uh, you know, as the score, like all of these things really over-delivered uh, and ultimately <laughs> made for a film that's, uh, that's quite watchable in my opinion. All right. So once again, I don't think I think currently there's not a really good place to stream this, at least in the United States. But, you know, keep an eye out. I know I have I've streamed it in the past through uh, um, like Amazon Prime or something or maybe even Netflix back in the day when they had older films. Uh, Wait, is it not on in, in there like a, a band tube app now, essentially? There is. And I'm, I'm a current subscriber to it. Okay. But uh, this was not on there. This was oh, pre okay. um, uh, either of those uh, companies. Uh, so oh, you know, it's I not, not available. Uh, uh, you know, it's, it's not a full moon picture, so it's not available through full moon. Uh, I wasn't even able to, to rent it digitally. But you rented that Shout Factory Blu-ray from uh, Atlanta's own Videodrome, mm-hmm. uh, the last video store here in Atlanta. And if anyone wants to check out uh, information about Videodrome or buy some merch from them, you can go to Videodrome.tv. They're not paying for this. Yeah, do uh, they even know we're giving them these free plugs? <laughs> no, I mean, uh, uh, I mean. It, we could hit them up and say, like, can you forgive our late fees yeah. if, <laughs> if we promote the website? But no, uh, we're happy to support Videodrome. Um, yeah, I guess that's it. I, I would love to hear from anyone who saw this on the screen in 3D back in the early 80s or saw or, or saw any of the other early 80s 3D uh, pictures. Or what you, yeah, I'd love to hear from everyone. What's your thought on just 3D cinema in general? Uh, does it give you a headache? 
uh, does it just fill you with wonder? Uh, uh, you know, I, I, I would I would love to, to hear everyone's experience. What are your favorite movies that are obsessed with crystals? You got this, you got the dark crystal. There got to be some other ones. I'm sure they have to be. There's so much crystal, you know, there's a lot of crystal mania. I think the screenwriter for this mentioned that he was super into reading about Atlantis when he wrote this. Huh. So I don't know how that relates to it. But it does remind me a bit of the whole story of shockwaves about the screenwriters for that being uh, inspired by a Morning of the Magician. So oh. I, I think this is all an appropriate use of occult um, and conspiracy theorist nonsense. It's like, take it and make some sort of uh, zombie film out of it. Make some sort of goofy science fiction film out of it. Rather than, you mean like misleading pseudo-documentaries for TV? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would think so, yeah. yeah. All right, well, we're going to go ahead and close it up here. Um, but in the meantime, you can check out other episodes of Weird House Cinema every Friday in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. We are primarily a science podcast, and our core episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind air on Tuesdays and Thursdays. But on Fridays, we we unwind and we discuss a weird movie. Uh, we also publish some short episodes on Mondays and Wednesdays with a vault episode, a rerun on the weekends. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer. Producer Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stuff to blow your mind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 